If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 28. How are you going to impact the world with your one life? Thankfully, Jesus has not left us to try to answer that question on our own, to try to figure out how to impact the world. If this is what we were created for and this is what we have breath for, then He's also given us a plan for how that looks in every single one of our lives. And if we've at all been wrestling with that this week, which I hope we have, I want us to see the plan tonight. It's two words. Make disciples. Make disciples. As a pastor, the thing I realized early in this last year of pastoring that I was talking about, I realized I was talking about making disciples of all nations all the time. But if if I were to go around individually to the people who were sitting in front of me and ask them, how do you make disciples or what does it mean to make disciples? Most of them didn't have a clue. And I'd get some answers, but they'd all be different. And probably not really biblical. And I'm guessing that even in in this room, that if I were to go around asking individuals, how do you make disciples? We'd come up with all kinds of different answers. And I think that's a problem. Because this, this is Jesus' plan for how to impact nations for His glory. If we're going to be good at anything in our lives, we need to be good at this one thing. And so, I want us to think about what it means to make disciples tonight. Because here's the deal. What I've realized is that all of us in this room, in our individual lives, and all of us in our campus ministries, and in the churches where we attend, we have a tendency to make up plans and strategies for our lives. Strategies for our churches, strategies and plans for our campus ministries. And you can go over to Lifeway and grab a bunch of books from that bookstore that will help you craft a plan or a strategy. The problem is, somewhere along the way, we've begun to believe that we can come up with a plan or a strategy, and as long as we have God-glorifying motives behind that plan or that strategy, then God's going to bless that. And that's why First Baptist Church would build a $23 million building and give all of their resources into building that building because I guarantee you they had God-glorifying motives. I guarantee you they wanted to honor and glorify God. But here's what we've got to realize. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere does God ever promise to bless us based solely on our motives. I'm not saying motives aren't important, but nowhere in Scripture does God promise to bless us based solely on our motives. Instead, all throughout Scripture, God always promises to bless His plan. His plan. You come up with a plan with God-glorifying motives, you're not assured the blessing of God. You give yourself to the plan of God, you are guaranteed His blessing. No questions asked. You are guaranteed, assured His blessing in your life, your church, your campus ministry, guaranteed the blessing of God problem is we've taken the plan of God that has guaranteed his blessing and we've relegated it to the side what I mean by that is this Jesus never told us 
to build colleges or universities or seminaries. He never told us to build homes for the aged. He never told us to organize Sunday school. He never told us to construct one building. He never told us to start campus ministries. He never told us to organize the North American Mission Board. And he never told us to organize the International Mission Board. But he did tell us to make disciples in every part of the world. Now here's the deal. I'm not saying any one of those things is bad in and of themselves. But I am saying this. It is possible to go to college and seminary and never once make disciples. And it's possible to spend your entire life going to church buildings every Sunday and never once make disciples. And it's possible for you to spend your entire college life actively involved in your campus ministry and never once make disciples. And I believe it's possible to spend your entire life with the International Mission Board or the North American Mission Board and never make disciples. And so the last thing I want to do tonight is to call you to go to seminary or to call you to be more radically committed to your campus ministry. And the last thing I want to do is call you to go with the North American Mission Board or the International Mission Board or any other organization that is represented back there. I want to call you tonight to make disciples, period. No, listen, listen. I'm not trying to stir waters, I promise. And I, I know... I want to be back tomorrow night. I do. And so, so I need you, I need you to stay with me, okay? Please stay with me. This is Jesus' plan. Make disciples. And I think we've missed it. Even, even in my own life. Even in my own life, I could just, if I could just be really honest with you tonight. I, I started pastoring this church. Not that I haven't already been honest, so we'll just uh, continue on. I, uh, I started pastoring a church this last year. And as soon as I went to that church, there was an article that came out in Christian magazines that said, the youngest megachurch pastor in history. What a joke. All of a sudden, I start getting calls about my plans for this mega church and all the programs that we will do and how we're going to grow the church and this or that. And all of a sudden, I'm thrust into the American church dream, right? I'll be honest, it got old real quick because I had to square the fact that here I was in this situation and my model and example and ministry and life is a guy who spent more time with 12 guys than everybody else in the world put together. And when he got to the end of his ministry and he left this earth, he only had 120 people to show for it in Acts chapter 1. That's a mini-church. Jesus Christ, the youngest mini-church pastor in history. What if, what if 
Your impact on the world is based not on your position, is based not on how much money you have or how many people are following you. What if your impact on the world is based on whether or not you are making disciples of all nations, wherever you live, whatever you're doing. You get to John chapter 17 and Jesus recounts his whole ministry. Not one time does he mention one miracle he performed. Not one time does he mention the multitudes and the masses that followed him. But 40 times in John 17, 40 times he mentions the men that God had given him out of the world. I think Jesus believed that people, not programs, were God's method for winning the world to himself. And I believe he showed us that individuals, a few individuals, can absolutely shake the world for God. And I say we believe him. And I say we not try to come up with any different strategy. I say we give ourselves to the plan he's already outlined and trust him to bless it for his glory in the whole world. And so, so I want us to think about what does it mean to make disciples. And I hope, I pray that God will give fresh light on a text that many of us could recite. In order to give some fresh light on that, I want to share this text in the context of some brothers and sisters around the world who have taught me a lot about disciple making. Read it with me. Verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. How do you make disciples? I think Jesus tells us here. And I think he identifies, and if we could simplify it, four components of disciple-making that I pray we can get our arms and our hearts and our minds and our lives and the plans of our lives around tonight. Component number one. Well, let me back up before we get to component number one. Let me take you on a journey with me to a country in Asia where it's illegal to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's legal to gather together in worship like we've gathered together here. It was two summers ago when I had taken a team there from the seminary where I was teaching. And, and we were there and the whole goal was we were on this college campus and we were going to share the gospel with college students, most of whom had never heard the name of Jesus. And that was the plan. And that's what happened for the rest of the team. But God turned things upside down in a way I never could have imagined. We had gotten there on a Friday night. Saturday kind of recouped. And Sunday, our contact person there, and we'll just call him... Tommy, we won't use his real name, not that there's any spies in here tonight, but it'll be more fun this way. Tommy uh, came to us and he said, hey, there's a couple in this area. We'll call them Peter and Mary. Not the most Asian names, but we'll just stick with that, okay? Peter and Mary said, I want you guys to have an opportunity to meet with this couple because they're the leaders of the house church network in this area. So we were pumped. I had read enough about house churches to know that it's, it's not too common for Westerners or Americans to have the opportunity to interact with house church leaders because if you've been overseas before, you know that it's very common for people overseas to equate Westerners with Christianity. And so that increases the risk if these house church leaders are hanging out with Westerners. And so we went over to their apartment and we sat down and they began to talk with us about their house churches. They began to talk about how they meet late at night in their villages They group together and they have different people stand guard at other places in the villages so that if anybody came to catch them, those people would be able to warn them and they would scatter because if they were caught, they would be imprisoned or worse. 
We're just sitting there with our jaws on the ground. I can't believe I'm listening to this. They're talking about how their house churches are growing. We were asking them questions. And at one point I asked them, I said, as your churches are growing, how do you train up new leaders? And they said, well, that's one of our struggles. We're really wrestling with that right now. So churches are growing so fast. And about 10 minutes later, I didn't see it coming, but they'd start whispering to each other. And they turned to me and they said, would you be willing to train some of our house church leaders during your time here? Uh, yeah, I, that'd, be, that'd be fine. But I, I'd love to do that, but I don't want to cause you guys too much risk. And they said, well, we're going to our worship service tonight. They worship from about 9 to midnight. And they said, we'll see if there's some leaders who are available. And basically, if they're willing to risk it, we'll let you know tomorrow. The next morning, I'm sitting there. Tommy comes in. He says, Dave, I haven't seen this in the eight years I've been here. But training starts today at 2 o'clock. Okay, what do I say? He says, teach them the Bible. Okay, okay. So I walk in at two o'clock into this apartment. All the, all the blinds are closed on the windows. There's a group of about 20, 25 house church leaders sitting in a circle on the floor or in little stools like you would picture in a preschool, Sunday school classroom. And their Bibles are open. They're ready to study the Word. I don't remember exactly where we started. All I know is that eight hours later, we were still going strong. And they were just eating it up. It got to about 10 o'clock that night. They said, can we do this again tomorrow? I said, yeah. I said, what time would you like to do? Around 2, he said. They said, no, 8 o'clock in the morning. I said, okay. Uh, how long should I prepare for? They said, 8 o'clock at night. I said, okay. So <laughs> I went the next day. And to make a long story short, for the next two weeks, that was the pattern. 12 hours a day in different locations, training house church leaders in God's Word. Remember it was the second or third day. I was teaching from the book of Nehemiah. I was showing them some of the background and the history of the book of Nehemiah. Showing them some key passages in it. And afterwards we took a break and I could tell they were talking about something. Finally they sent somebody over to me. They said, we have a question for the teacher. I said, okay. They said, we really like what you did with the book of Nehemiah. All that background and all that history. They looked at me and they said, would you be willing to do that for us with all the books of the Old Testament? That's exactly what I did. I laughed in their face. I said, <laughs> all the books of the Old Testament, that would take a lot of time. They said, we'll do it. These are farmers, left their fields completely unattended for two weeks. So the next morning, when we get back there, I give them a background history of the Old Testament, historical overview, and then we start at Genesis, and over the next week and a half, walk all the way to the end of the Old Testament. I want you to imagine trying to teach the book of Song of Solomon to a bunch of Asian believers <laughs> and just praying that they don't ask any questions they love to ask questions teacher what does this mean it doesn't matter move on we got to the next to the last day of training and uh and we finished up malachi so they said well we got one more day we're going the full day we got to get it all in so we got back at 8 the next morning. If I could be honest with you, I walked in that room thinking, what in the world am I going to teach? We've been through Habakkuk. What else is there? So I began to, to teach through something, and about an hour into it, a guy in the back raises his hand, and he says, Teacher, we have a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, you have given us the whole Old Testament, but we don't have the New Testament yet. I said, you've got to be kidding. He said, Teacher, we want the New Testament today. And so for the next 11 hours, we walk from Matthew to the book of Revelation. They love the Word. It, it means something to them. 
and they risk their lives to study it. They leave their homes in the morning and walk or ride their bikes to the training, knowing that they may not go back to see their wife that night. We had to do the training in different places, mobile, so that nothing would be suspicious at one suspicious at one particular place. That meant we had to be more active in going into the villages, which we'd been doing it in the city, where more people, villages, to see a westerner there would really cause suspicion. And so they said, David, we need you to wear dark pants and a jacket with a hood on it. We're going to put you in the back of our car. You just kind of huddle up there. And we'll drive you as close as we can to the place where we'll do training. We'll sneak you in. We'll put you in a place where nobody can see you through windows and doors. They'll teach, train, and then, then we'll sneak you back out. And so that's what we did for that last week and a half. Seeing these folks day by day coming, knowing that, that it was risking their lives. If you could imagine with me just going to a worship service, not a 12-hour training, just a worship service one evening. You get a dark pants and a jacket with a hood on it. You, you climb into the back of a car. You huddle up there while they drive you late at night into this village. You're greeted there by an Asian believer who meets you with your hood on, with a little flashlight. They escort you down this pathway where you round the corner and you come into a room Maybe the size of this stage, probably not even as big as this stage. Sixty believers crammed in there, one little light bulb hanging in the middle. And they worship there in that secret setting for two and three hours. The temptation is for us to think, Dave, how can we help these brothers and sisters? They're sitting in little rooms with little one little light bulb hanging in the middle. Let's get together our resources. Let's get together an offering. Let's send them some of the stuff we have. Guys, the Holy Spirit is doing just fine in that country without all of the resources we surround ourselves with. Somewhere along the way, they actually believe that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is enough to make the Gospel known in their country. And so I want you to see what they taught me based on what Matthew 28, 18-20 is teaching us. Component number one. Now we'll get to it. Making disciples. What you've got is one... See, now I haven't even given it to you. Just stick with me. We're going to get it in a second. There's one imperative, one command in the original language of the New Testament, the Great Commission. And the command is to make disciples. It is surrounded by three participles. Going, baptizing, and teaching. I think what Scripture's teaching us here is that these are participles that describe how the command looks. Going, baptizing, and teaching. So let's start with going. Component number one. Now we're there. Share the Word. You go and you share the Word. You look at John 17 and you see Jesus recounting His ministry with His disciples and He starts by saying how the Father had drawn them to Himself. And Jesus, His goal was to draw those that the Father had given to Him. What He's saying in disciple-making is that we are active in sharing the Word of Christ. We are drawing people to Christ. That's what we do. It's the initial point in making disciples. We share the Word. Now, these Asian believers know about that. I remember we were doing the training. We were doing the training one day, and, and one of the people left the training, and that night led somebody in their village to Christ. And then brought that person with them to the training the next day. This lady sitting there who just came to Christ with a Bible for the first time, listening to it being taught. And afterwards she comes up to me and one of the house church leaders and says, uh, I just became a Christian. And we said, yeah, we heard. And she said, well, the problem is my house is full of idols and gods that I have set up everywhere. She said, I think I need to get rid of them. We said, I, we think that would be a good idea too. 
And so the next morning we went to her house and we got all these idols and foreign gods. We brought them outside and we set them on fire. And we started training that day with the smell of burning idols outside. They're leading people to Christ. I was there the first time two summers ago, two house churches I was working with. By the time I went back five months later, they had grown to eight house churches. They had multiplied. Two to eight. When I was there, they said, we're leading all these people to Christ. What do we do once we lead them to Christ? And so what I did that time is I walked them through. Once you lead somebody to Christ, here's 25 truths that you can begin to walk that person through to begin the disciple-making process in their lives. Within a month of getting back, I get an email from that house church leader saying... David, we need you to send us all that stuff. We try to take as good a notes as possible. We need you to send it to us because since you've left, we led a hundred people to Christ and we need to help them grow in Christ. They're sharing the word and they're leading people to Christ. Now you compare that picture with our picture. With our picture where we, we've created the idea that the most effective way to bring people to Christ is to offer the best presentation at the best place at the best time with the best person who's communicating the gospel. We bring them in and then they'll come to Christ. And so we, we have created, let's be honest, we have created some incredible stellar programs and stellar presentations. And we've got some stellar communicators all across our country that can bring them in and get them saved. But I just don't think that squares with Jesus' plan. Because if that is the way that we lead people to Christ, then we'll never impact the world. Because we'll have to replicate this presentation and this kind of place with this kind of person over and over and over again. And we'll have to spend more millions and more millions on better buildings and better communicators to get them to communicate the gospel. And I've got to wonder, what if the strategy of Christ was not dependent on having the right presentation at the right place with the right person? What if it was dependent on people, people of God, taking the word entrusted to them and sharing it? What if... What if your life and your Christianity was created to not be dependent on programs and presentations in one person to do the job that all of us have been equipped to do with the Spirit of Christ? You are all preachers of the Gospel. You are all, we are all proclaimers of the Gospel, sharing the Word. I remind you, This week, I do not preach for your sake. If I did, then everything would center on you. And we would have a successful conference if you were pleased with what I said. I do not preach for your sake. Preach for God's sake. God's sake among you, yes. I want you to know. I want us to know the reason we have breath. I want you to know that you're not guilty anymore. You don't have any shame anymore. You have no reason to fear anymore. So yes, I preach for God's sake among you, but not just among you. I preach for God's sake among the nations. I'm preaching just so that you will know you're not guilty. Know that you don't have shame and know that you don't have fear. 
preach so that you will go to every person on your campus and every person in all nations and declare you're not guilty anymore. You have no more shame. You have no reason to fear because Christ has conquered sin and conquered death and conquered the grave and He gives you eternal life. We share the Word. We share the Word. That's where disciple making starts. God, make us a people. I'm convinced we'll accomplish the Great Commission as long as we don't depend on programs and presentations and one person to do the job that we've all been gifted to do. Component number two, going, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Number one, we share the Word, we go. Number two, we show the Word. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do you mean show the Word? Well, don't miss it. This is, this is that part of the Great Commission where... Why is baptism so important in the Great Commission? Why would you just emphasize that? And I'm convinced it's because baptism is biblically the way that we identify our lives with Christ. We identify with His life and His death. This is the picture that we give to the world that we belong to Him. In those settings teaching in the house churches. I remember the first time I was teaching on disciple making, teaching on this text, talking about baptism. There were two guys in there that had not been baptized. One of them had recently come to faith in Christ. The other one was actually a teenager who had come with his uncle. He wasn't even a believer at that point. He had just tagged along with his uncle that particular day. His uncle wanted him to come to Christ. Well, that day he came to faith in Christ and they came up and said, we need to be baptized. If the Bible says be baptized, we need to do that. So the next day they asked me to do some teaching on baptism and I did and started walking through scripture and seeing how baptism is how we identify with the life and death of Christ and got to the end of that time and it had just been kind of a normal study and then it hit me like a ton of bricks. It hit me that what I was calling them to do based on the word of God was something that could cost them their lives. To identify with Christ and His church. It's not a safe thing to do. And it just overwhelmed me. It brought me to tears as I'm teaching them. And I just couldn't teach the Bible study anymore. I looked at them and I said, I realize that this is very costly for you. And I was almost speechless. And the house church leader, Peter, joined in. And he brought those two guys in front of that whole group of church leaders. And he asked both of them, one by one, point blank, this question. He looked at them and said, Are you willing to be baptized today, knowing that it may cost you your life? First guy, new believer. Are you willing to be baptized today, knowing that it costs your life? He looks back and he says, I have already sacrificed everything to follow Jesus Christ. I want to be baptized. Second guy, teenage boy. Are you willing to be baptized today? No one that may cost you your life. He looks back and he says, Jesus is my Lord. Whatever he says to, I will do it. That day those two guys were baptized. And they identified with Christ. This is huge. And it's not just an event, a point. But it is a life that's identified with Christ. We show the Word. The Word is now incarnated in us. The Word is made flesh in us. It is Christ in you now. You show the Word. You see, if we stop at sharing the Word, we'll never make disciples and we'll never impact the world if we just lead people to Christ. Involved in that is showing the Word. Taking people in all of our spheres of influence. Whether they are new believers, young believers, maybe not believers at all. And saying, I'm going to lay down my life 
to show them what the character of Christ and the life of Christ looks like. And I'm going to take responsibility for intentionally investing my life in theirs so that they see holiness in me, they see righteousness in me, they see the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the patience of Christ, the joy of Christ in me. I'm going to show the Word to them and I'm going to impart the character of Christ to them. I'm going to make them my life. You think that's biblical? Listen to Paul. You've got to see this. Turn with me to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Go with me to the right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to show you a few verses Paul says that I think sum this up so beautifully. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. This is, this is an amazing picture Paul gives us over and over again in the New Testament. How he's imparting the character of Christ to others and he's living through them. Listen to this. Verse 31, many of us know, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We know that. Now listen to verse 32. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Listen to this. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Is that a bold thing to say? For you to say to somebody else, If you follow me and you do what I do, you will be following Christ. That's bold. This wasn't the only time Paul said it. Keep going to the right. Go to Philippians. Look at Philippians. You go to 2 Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 3. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Listen to what he says after he talks about how he's found in Christ. Listen to verse 17. Underline these in our Bibles. Listen to this. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. He's writing them and he says, follow my example. Same thing, next chapter, chapter 4, verse 9. Listen to this verse. Imagine saying this to one, two, three other people in your life. This is disciple making. Listen to this. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, you put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. You see Paul rising up here. Let me show you one more book. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Keep going to the right. It's right before 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. Listen to this. Listen to what Paul says. This is the crux of it. What it means to live, to impart the character of Christ to others. To take responsibility for that. Listen to this. For what is our hope? 1 Thessalonians 2.19 What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when He comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. He says, people are my crown. When I stand before Christ, my crown will be people who I've imparted the character of Christ to. Get down to chapter 3, verse 6 through 8. Listen to this. Timothy just, just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you've always pleasant memories of us. And you long to see us just as we long to see you. Listen to this. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. Here's the key verse. For now we really live since you were standing firm in the Lord. Did you catch that? I live because you were standing firm in the Lord. My life is based on whether or not you stand firm. Who in your life is your crown? Who is your joy? Who are the people in your life? I'm not talking about a ton of people. You can't do this with a ton of people. Jesus did it with 12 guys. Who are the people in your life that you are living for? 
that you are living to impart the character of Christ to, you are showing them the character of Christ, you see how this radically changes our perspective of sanctification. And we begin to realize that biblically, sanctification is not primarily for our sake. Sanctification is something that we accomplish for others' sake. Think about it. Now my holiness has a direct effect on others' Christianity. And there are others who are now dependent on looking to me to see the character of Christ. This is thoroughly biblical. They would be dependent on me to see the character of Christ. And that changes my sanctification because now, now I've got to be pure with my girlfriend or my boyfriend because their Christianity and their Christian life is dependent on seeing purity in me. Now I've got to know the Word. And I've got to study the Word. And I've got to be in prayer. And I've got to be following Christ. And I've got to be holy. Why? Just because so I can say I'm doing good to my accountability partner? No. So that the character of Christ will be imparted to somebody else. I'm now living for their sake. This is no longer self-centered Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. Living our lives for the sake of others. And the beauty of it is it comes full circle. Because we live for the sanctification of others. And in that process, it sanctifies us. Because our holiness is raised to a completely different level. Because we need to grow for their sake. That's why I'm convinced. If, if we go throughout our Christianity and do not give ourselves the disciple making, we are destined to be stagnant. We are destined to flatline in our growth. Until you make disciples of all nations, you will never grow in Christ. Because, because the process of disciple making is designed for you to impart the character of Christ to others. And the process of doing that for you to grow in the character of Christ in that relationship. We show the word. We demonstrate the word. Who are you living for? Who are the people in your life that are dependent on you to see sanctification? For their sake. Who is your crown? Who is your joy? Share the word, show the word. Going, baptizing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Share the word, show the word, teach the word. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is an incredible picture. Obviously, at other places in the New Testament, we see teaching relegated to positions of authority or leadership in the church. But at the same time, obviously based on the Great Commission, there's a teaching function that every single one of us in this room has as a believer in Christ. That all of us, all of us in this room, who have placed our faith in Christ, have been commanded to teach people to obey Christ. All of us. Commanded to teach the Word. As we're showing them the Word, then we teach them the Word. And this doesn't mean that you have to have a classroom Just get that out of our mind. Discipleship is a classroom experience for one hour a week. This is Jesus. Class was always in session. He's always teaching. He's always taking the Word and pouring it into others. This is disciple making. Teaching the Word. When I was in those house churches, I'd sit there and I'd be teaching them about all these random things in the Old Testament. And I hardly ever saw their eyes. I hardly ever saw their eyes. Was it because they were sleeping? Because the back just wasn't doing it for them? Was it because they were talking or they were doing other things, daydreaming? No, they were writing down as fast as they could everything that I said. Because they knew, these were the house church leaders, they knew that they had the responsibility to go throughout their house churches and teach the Word to them. They were not just receiving, they were reproducing. Let me ask you a question. Are you a receiver or a reproducer? 
Be honest. Tonight, well, we won't even we won't even get personal. You go across church sanctuaries on a Sunday morning, and you look across the crowd. I think that you'll see predominantly a bunch of receivers. People who, even if they are listening intently to get something out of the Word, even if they're listening to get something out of the Word, they're primarily listening to see what they can get for themselves, to see what nugget of truth they can get from the Word that week that can change their life that week. They're listening for themselves. They're not listening with the intent to reteach, reproduce that to somebody else. Now, bring it into this room. How many of us, let's just really be honest with ourselves, how many of us tonight are listening to the Word being taught listening this whole week to the Word being taught with the intent of reteaching that to somebody as soon as you leave this place. How many of you will be able tomorrow to reteach everything we talk about tonight? By the fact that many of us are sitting here listening and soaking in, but I see your eyes the whole time. The likelihood is many of us would not be able to do that. And what that means is that we've listened for self-consumption and we haven't listened for the sake of the nations. I'm praying that God would transform the way we even listen to the Word. That we would no longer listen to receive it, we would listen to reproduce it. That we would listen tonight for the sake of people who are not in this room. So that we would not let the Word, God help us not to let the Word stop with us. Will the Word stop with you or spread through you? We need to teach the Word. All of us, take the Word. If there's anything good that I've said this week, anything good that Landon has said this week, take it, make it better, and teach it somewhere. Teach it to people. The problem is many of us aren't teaching because we don't have relationships that are depending on us to hear the Word from us. And it's time for us to get those avenues in our lives that we are making disciples. And now everything we study, our quiet time, we've got a whole new meaning for our quiet time. We're not just studying to have a... Have a box checked off in our life. We're not just studying for our own consumption. We're studying because there are other people that are dependent on getting the Word from us. Does that sound biblical? Are you a receiver or a reproducer? We teach the Word. We share the Word. We show the Word. And we teach the Word. And finally, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. It's not just teaching in a classroom style for information. It's teaching for application so that they obey Everything I've commanded you. And you do that in all nations. So we share the word, we show the word, we teach the word, and finally we serve the world. We serve the world, component number four. And what we do is we, is we, take, we take the relationships that God has given to us, that God has put us in. And this is how, please listen to this, because this is how your life in central Oklahoma can impact, impact the world. And your life in the middle of the smallest town in New Mexico can impact the world. This is how. When you begin to take a few people, relationships that God has entrusted to you, that you've shown the Word to and taught the Word to, and then you begin to take those relationships and you begin to empower them to serve alongside you. And you do that in context on your campus or in your community or in your city. And you do that in context in all nations. And you take those people with you and you begin to go after the world together. You serve the world. And it's at this point that we are now a part of a process. Don't miss it. 
Your life is now about a part of a process of mobilizing an army of believers that is taking on the world, that is multiplying the gospel to the world. Picture of going out and serving the world together. If we just show the word to each other, we just teach the word to each other, but we don't serve the world together, we won't be making disciples. It's got to be there. I think the question we need to ask at this point, this is how I put it sometimes, I think we need to ask ourselves in the church, are we, are we discipling Christians or disinfecting Christians? What I mean by that is disinfecting isolates a Christian in a spiritual safety deposit box called the church and teaches him or her to be good. And holiness is defined not by what we do, but by what, by what we don't do. And we're holy if you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do this. That makes you holy. I think that point we're the only organization in the world that is defining our success based on what we don't do. It's not a good thing. Holiness is not about what you don't do. It's about what you do. But we isolate Christians in a spiritual safety box called the church, teach him or her to be good, and the result is, the fruit of that is decent citizens with little world impact. If we're... If we're honest, the majority of believers in our church culture have no more world impact today than the day before they were saved. We're decent people with decent homes and decent jobs and decent families. We're decent citizens, but we're disobedient to God's command, disobedient to God's command to reach the entire world. And the result ultimately is a wasted life. But I think there's another option here than isolating ourselves in buildings where we define success by how many many come in and are insulated and isolated from the real needs in the world. Maybe success is defined not by disinfecting, but by discipling. And discipling, instead of disinfecting a Christian in a spiritual safety deposit box, discipling propels a Christian into the world to risk everything for the sake of others. And now holiness is defined not by what we don't do, but by what we do do. What we're going after in the world. What we're running after. Who we're serving. How we're laying down our lives for the people around us. In our communities and in all nations. Not either or, both and. And the result is not decent citizens. The result is disciples of Christ. And the result is not disobedience. It's obedience to the command of Christ to reach the entire world. And instead of a wasted life, now we've got a life that counts for His glory on the landscape of human history. Because we're taking on the world together through the context of disciple-making. Now think about it. I'm I'm guessing some of you, many of you may may have heard this before, but think about it with me. If all of us together at this conference, at the end of this conference this week, we were to challenge ourselves over the next year, we were going to lead one person to Christ every day. Combined together, we were able to lead one person to Christ every single day. It would be tough, but maybe we could do it. On our campuses, in our cities, this time next year, 365 people would have come to know Christ. It would be, be good. Imagine we were to continue to do that year after year after year after year. Working hard. After 30 plus years, through doing that, We would lead over 10,000 people to Christ. We'd make a a small dent in the lost population of the United States of America. Let me give you another scenario, though. Instead of all of us combining together to lead one person to Christ every single day, what if just one student from this room, just one student, over the next year, instead of leading one person to Christ every day, what what if you shared the word with just one person on your campus? And led them to Christ. Just one person. But you didn't stop there. 
you begin to take responsibility for showing them what it means to pray and to study the Word, what it means to be holy. And you begin to impart the character of Christ to them. And as you were doing that, you begin to teach the Word to them. You didn't relegate that to a Sunday school or Bible study classroom. You took personal responsibility for teaching the Word. And along the way, you began to mobilize that person to know what it means to lay down their lives and get their hands dirty and serve the people around them and do the same thing in their lives. So that at the end of this year, this time next year, you've done that in one person's life. Just one on your campus. One student, one person. That means this time next year there'd be two going out and doing that. Imagine just that were to continue at that slow of a rate. One person a year. You would continue to do that year after year after year gospel would begin to multiply. In the same time frame, you would see over 10,000 people to come to know Christ over there. In this scenario, you would see over 4 billion people come to faith in Christ. Maybe Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, make disciples. Maybe you and I can't come up with a better plan than this. Maybe we don't need to. Those house churches, there's movement to mobilize college-age students to go from their country to Jerusalem and to hit all the unrich peoples in between. Their goal is to mobilize 100,000 college students who will risk their lives to make the gospel known in these unreached nations. After that first time, they invited me to come back and do some training with that particular group. The last two times I've been there, that's who I was with. I remember getting there the first night. It was about 8 o'clock. Everybody went to bed. It's the only college conference in the world where everybody goes to bed at 8 o'clock. Why did they go to bed so early? They went to bed so early because the next morning they were up about 5.30. And by 6, 6.30, they had lined up in the main room. Nowhere near the size of this crowd. The underground location. They lined up in the main room, about, about 30 of them. Guys on one side, girls on the other side. And from 6 or 6.30 to about 8, all they do is pray. They bow down on their knees and they sing out, fall on their faces and they pray. 8 o'clock, we take a short break for breakfast. Then we sit down at 8.30, all on little stools. And for the next 12 hours, we study the Word. And they go to bed that night and get up and do the same drill the next morning. I remember talking to a couple of them. They would come up to me and they would share about their stories. They would share about how some of them had parents in prison. They would share about how they had left their families and told them they would not be coming back. And then they would share with me about the countries they had dreams to go to. They would talk about how their one life was going to impact India. How their one life was going to impact Sri Lanka. How their one life was going to impact Myanmar, Laos, Vietnam. And then at the end of those times together, they would ask me to pray over them. I would go around the room and they would just be on their faces, just weeping before the Lord. Literally, when you finish, just puddles of tears around the room. And I'd go around and I'd pray over each of them. And I want you to know that during those times, I didn't just pray for them. I, I prayed for you. Sure, I didn't, I didn't know you at that time. I didn't know I'd be standing before you right now, but I prayed that God would raise up a generation of students 
who would live to make disciples of all nations, who would breathe to make disciples of all nations, and who would absolutely abandon every other pursuit in life to accomplish this one plan. And so I want to ask you tonight, are you willing to say that the most important thing in your life from this day until the day that God brings you home will be to make disciples of all nations. Would you be willing to say that? Would you be willing to give him a blank check with that and say, God, wherever I can most effectively make disciples of all nations, I will be there. And if that's in this part of Texas or this part of Thailand, I'll be there Geographic location doesn't matter anymore. Now, wherever we live is a base of ministry for making disciples and saying, God, you just show me where that you want that base to be, and I'll, I'll be there. That's a, that's a huge surrender. But I think it's what the disciples rose up and took after Matthew 28, verse 20. And with the presence of Christ with them in Acts 1 and 2, they began to take on the world with their one lives. And you get to Acts chapter 17, and the Bible says they had turned the world upside down. God, may it be so.